Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 103 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and alongside me, attempting to trek through the oasis without losing coin is my best friend, co-host, and fellow Gunter Aaron. Hello! This week, we were too excited to wait to drop our next episode, as we've been anxiously awaiting the movie we're covering since it was announced. We're talking Steven Spielberg's adaptation of Ernest Cline's sci-fi novel, Ready Player One. But before we get into that, and what we've been up to, Aaron, do we have any announcements that we need to uh, announce? We do, and since I can't send a message across the Oasis to everyone instantaneously, they're just going to have to listen to this podcast to get this announcement. No, that's a lie. It's pretty much going to be instantaneous with Twitter and Facebook and all our other social media feeds. But if you haven't seen it there already, we do want to let everyone know that we are at that time of month again where it's our April donor pick episode voting time. We are going with a theme of spring, which means rain. So all of these films uh, feature that in some prominent way. The choices for this month will be Singing in the Rain, Road to Perdition, Seven, Life of Pi, or The Perfect Storm. So you can get a vote for as little as $1 a month, and we'll be asking our donors to choose a top five list this month additionally that we will cover in bonus content. Uh, it's exciting stuff because we have not been able to do enough bonus bonus content lately with my appendix, appendix coming out last month. Uh, we really just, our schedule got all jacked up and we're trying to get back to a consistent one where our donor pick episode comes out at the end of every month and we drop a bonus episode or two in there. And this top five, uh, we want you, our listeners, to vote on that so that you can be a part of it. Again, as little as a dollar a month to support us and help us, uh, us offset the cost of running the podcast, but also get you to be a part of this as a participant. Uh, you can check us out at patreon.com slash film and uh, join up. We'd love to have you. Thank you, Aaron. Yes, we definitely hope you guys are uh, going to be a part of that. We enjoy talking movies, and even though we got our wires crossed or our schedules mixed up, it'll be fun to drop those two episodes later on this week. Um, speaking of this week, Aaron, what have you been up to, my friend? Well, I have been watching a lot of movies. I know that our listeners are probably shocked beyond belief about that. The fact is, I love film, and so I spend as much time as I possibly can in front of my TV watching movies. Um, that's why we do what we do. It's it's a love. It's a passion. I sometimes get on these kicks, though, where I will find uh, an actor, an actress, uh, um, uh, some kind of a, a genre, and I will start to explore that in more depth once I've fallen in love with something in particular. And this weekend, I, for some reason, was really feeling an idea of, I want to watch some sort of series that has a lot of extra bonus content. So I was looking for something with cool special features, making of documentaries, something of like that. And what I discovered was that the Hunger Games collection had all four movies and it had a making of documentary on each of the films. Now this is an additional two to two and a half hour doc for each movie. 
I mean, this is like a lot of content. So I was like, you know, I haven't seen these films in a long time. I remember really liking most of them. Uh, back in the day, I actually went to a theater marathon viewing twice for both parts of Mockingjay, where I watched all the movies in sequence leading up to the newest one. And that was a lot of fun. I remembered kind of being down on Mockingjay Part 2 and just never coming back to them. And so I said, okay, I'm going to check out Hunger Games 1, and then I'm going to watch this making of documentary right afterwards. And so I did that. And oh my goodness, Patrick, like it was such an incredible experience. Over the course of, I'd say, three, maybe four days, I watched all four Hunger Games movies. And after each one, I spent the time to watch the making of documentary. And so it really immersed me in their world in a much different way than I ever could have been. Now, I would always champion the idea of watching a series in sequence like that very close to each other because I think that it certainly helps the experience. When you're talking transitioning like that, uh, when your plot is so con- is is so condensed, there's not like a gap of time in The Hunger Games, right? So when we finish The Hunger Games and it rolls into Catching Fire, it's literally like the the end of the movie is the start of the next movie. There's not a 10 years later and we're picking it back up again. So it flows really well. I won't go into too much detail. I will say that I absolutely adore The Hunger Games, the original one. Um, I do not know why that film is not more loved. The director is Gary Ross, and he didn't go on to do the rest of the films, but there's something really special about it and the way that he chose to not overly make it violent, um, but yet keep the tone enough so that you knew what was at stake for these kids. And then as we transition, Francis Lawrence takes over directing duty and does another knockout job. But man, those making of documentaries, they gave me so much incredible information. And I've got to tell you, seeing the cast and the director talk about each other and just praise each other, Donald Sutherland on, I'm kidding, not kidding you, all four documentaries, he gives a different interview where he does nothing but talk about how amazing Jennifer Lawrence is. And It's well-documented if you're a part of our Feel and Film Facebook group that I have a little bit of a problem with Jennifer Lawrence as a person. She's she's done some things in the public eye that I just don't agree with, but as an actress, uh, her talent is undeniable, and I think she is amazing in this series, and I totally get it why her cast members all loved her to death. Um, Just seeing this whole cast interact behind the scenes was really, really cool. They were super close, and I doubt that every movie is like this. In fact, Woody Harrelson is quoted in this doc as saying that this is the best filmmaking experience of his life. Now, that, he has like 60-plus movie credits, right? So this is a big deal. He said that if they made 25 more of these films, he would gladly immediately sign up to do all 25. So that's the kind of experience that this crew and this cast had while making The Hunger Games. And I have an incredible new appreciation for them and also just in general for seeking out behind the scenes documentaries and making of videos. Unfortunately, I got to tell you, I couldn't find a lot of them out there. I did a lot of internet looking and uh, I would love listeners send me recommendations for your favorite making of documentaries or special features. If you know of ones that exist on Blu-ray discs for movies that you like. Let me know what those are because I would love to watch them after watching films. It's it's a new thing for me, and I, I don't think it's going to stop. Well, and, that, and that's the thing about behind-the-scenes stuff in these documentaries is that you you do get an appreciation for what goes on, but you get a different level of respect for the fact that I think we miss the 
the point of going to movies and how we, we miss the appreciation of the creators behind them. Um, as, as a creator myself, I'm trying to learn more how to do that. I'm trying to learn how to appreciate directors and writers and actors and actresses that I may not care for maybe from a personal standpoint, but can appreciate their acting prowess and can appreciate what they bring to this art form. And I think documentaries give us a little personal taste of the sacrifices they make and the time and effort they put in because we forget that, you know, we're the ones seeing the end result of, of this. We're seeing the two hours on screen. We're not seeing the two years put into making our experience what it is. And so I'm, I'm definitely a fan of those types of things. I also want to say one other thing about this and it sort of applies to ready player one as well. And that is that I truly feel having separated myself from the source material for as long as I have, it's been, you know, two, three years, probably since I've read these books. Gosh, actually, it's probably been longer than that. As opposed to having read the series so, you know, recently when I watched these movies, having that distance made me able to appreciate these movies as movies and as the story that they are telling much, much more because I didn't remember all of the minutia that the movies left out or that the movies changed. I just took the experience. I knew the main plot line. I knew the flow of the story, which is very similar to Ready Player One. I knew the flow, but the details, I didn't get hung up on that they were changed because I didn't have them so fresh in my head. So I think, and I highly recommend to others out there, that the longer you go between reading the book and seeing the film it's based on, the better your experience is going to be. And that's my new plug out there. I mean, I, I put this on Twitter during the week. I said to somebody, you know, give it six months to a year. If you're going to read the mo- the book of the movies that are coming out, as soon as the, you know, as soon as you find out a movie is is coming based on a book that you want to read, read it immediately or wait until after you see the movie. One of the two. But don't don't do the thing where you read the book like the week that you're getting ready to go see the movie. I used to do that, thinking, oh, this is going to make for a better experience. And it's never brought me anything but pain. <laughs> so distance works. That's good. Um, what about you? Did you get to check anything out this week? I know we're recording early, so less yeah. time. Well, my dad actually asked me the other day, he said, hey, are you going to watch that new show, Krypton? And I remember you and I having a conversation about this. This is the David S. Goyer creation that's on sci-fi right now. Um, it's a, a new series that explores the the world of Krypton, planet of my favorite superhero ever. Batman. The other one, the one that actually is super. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. America's favorite alien, Superman. <laughs> this is the face he's giving me. Is just what if my alien. favorite alien is Stitch? Well, that's fine. You can, <laughs> you can have that. <laughs> that's a top five bonus episode, but you have to subscribe to Patreon to find out. Ding. Anyway. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> anyway, this was a this was a series that I was sort of half and half looking forward to because anytime you explore the world of Superman or some of his mythology, I'm going to get somewhat excited about it. However. The track record of David Goyer lately as a writer has not been great. I mean, he did the screenplay for Man of Steel, which I which I enjoyed. He also penned The Dark Knight, which was fantastic. But his credibility, at least in the last several movies, has not been impressive to me. I have not been really just on board with what he's done. Um, but I wanted to give it a chance. And what I liked about this series is the fact that we're not just doing a Superman origin story. This is not about Superman. He is somewhat of an anchor in it, but it takes place 
years and years and years and years and years before the destruction of Krypton. Spoiler alert if you haven't read any Superman comic. Um, and it centers itself around his grandfather. And I'm still trying to get all the all the names correct, but his last name, of course, is L. Uh, if you you know if you didn't know already, Jorel and Kal-El, and I can't remember his name now, but it's you know some singular syllable, and that you know hopefully someone will 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 tell me uh, or remind me. But anyway, so the pilot episode debuted this week, and it's got a Game of Thrones type of feel to it in Ooh. terms of being kind of it doesn't feel space operatic just yet, and. I was incredibly impressed with how much world building took place in the course of 45 minutes. We got a history of the House of L. What you find out early is that their crest, their family emblem, um, their rank is what it's called, has been taken away because the main character's great, his main character's grandfather, I guess it would be Jarrell's great great grandfather, I can't get the lineage right, is tried and kind of um, executed for treason. And so the the series starts out with this incredible like death, uh, this loss of a, of a family member. And so our main character is just sort of growing up. He's 14 years later, he's, he's a teenager. And the opening episode gives us backstory about him, about what his motives are. And we come to find out that the bigger story that's taking place is that there is a destructive force coming that his grandfather found out about. It's called the destroyer of, or the collector of worlds, uh, commonly known as Brainiac. And so it leaves us kind of hanging about if he doesn't find a way to take down Brainiac, uh, Krypton is going to be destroyed before Jorel has a chance to be born, which means that <laughs> Kal-El is not born. And so the fate of Superman you know, however many years in the future is at stake because of this big event that's sort of looming. And along with that, there are some smaller subplots that are going on that have to do with uh, with ancestral history and how how families are are connected. There is um, the line of Zod. Uh, there's a there's a family line that's being introduced. Some some characters from that family are connected to the house of L in different ways. And so it's, it's really kind of, I would call it not mythological, but it would be more like, um, again, like game of Thrones. So I didn't think I would like it. And the more that I got into it, the more that I was really, really impressed with the pilot episode. I haven't seen the second one. I think it debuted this week, but, um, but I'm looking forward to it. I usually, when it comes to TV shows that I'm either keen on or not keen on, I usually give them about three to four episodes before I kind of make a final call. But I enjoyed it personally. There's kind of mixed reviews about it. People are like, eh, if you can get away from the Game of Thrones and get more into the big picture stuff, I think you're going to have me. And I can agree with that. But even the small scale stuff is pretty impressive to me. So yeah, I liked it. Awesome. Well, the, they've done some good stuff lately with The Expanse. Uh, I believe that's on sci-fi as well. And it's got some pretty good world building built into it. I know I've read the books or read a couple of the books and watched most of the first season and it was it was really well done. So yeah, I'm excited to hear more about it. I probably won't get around to watching it because I just never do. Yeah. But I did like the pilot or not the pilot. I did like the teaser trailer for it a lot. It looked, like you said, much more gritty than anything I've ever seen Superman related. Well, and that's the thing is it's 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 distantly separated. I mean, you're telling me fresh stories. We talked about this on the show that if you're going to give me stories about the past of an event that I know of, like Star Wars or Superman or whatever... Make it just 
thin enough that you can be original, that you can be really refreshing in the stories that you tell. And so when you take us back two generations and focus on Jarrell's grandfather or Kala's grandfather, that's something really interesting because that's a story that I don't know. And I was there was a small kind of featurette afterwards of about 45 minutes. They were talking about the uh, the history of the character, about Superman. And, and Goyer went on record as saying, look, I wanted to create something that I started in Man of Steel. And so you see the opening sequence of Man of Steel is on Krypton. And he said, I wanted to expand on that. I wanted to show the the beauty and the and the just the 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 expansion of how big this uh this this planet was and candor and everything and even the idea of the genesis chamber that originated in man of steel makes a significant plot point in the in the pilot episode so he's bringing stuff from man of steel into this world of uh of of krypton and he's not the he's not the head writer by any means. He's a showrunner, and so he's got a lot of other talent around him. So I'm pretty optimistic about it. Awesome. Well, that's exciting, man. And I'm happy for you. I hope it turns out to be great. Yeah, me too. All right. Well, getting that out of the way, let's go ahead and give you our official spoiler alert. This movie is going to be heavily spoiled. There's a lot to talk about, and we wanted to make sure that you get a chance to watch the movie before you come back and listen. So that being said... Why don't we get started with our one-word takeaways? Aaron, you want to get us started? Sure thing. I can do that. Um, My one-word takeaway is ecstasy, (laughs) because that is what I felt coming out of this film. This experience for me was incredibly memorable. Um, I want to quote Matt Fletcher, one of our listeners, because I had the exact same feeling he he did, but he worded it in a way that I think is great. He said, honestly, I think the best thing I can say about this movie is that I want to see it again immediately. And I had that same exact reaction to Ready Player One. When I walked out of the theater, I could have easily just walked down the hall one theater, walked right in and sat down in another chair and watched it again. And no problem at all. And these days, that is a very rare thing for me. I watch probably upwards of 500 films a year and repeat viewings don't happen frequently because I'm always watching something new. I'm always on to the next thing. I want to see this movie a million more times. I've been counting down every minute to when I get to take my kids to see it tomorrow night. So we've, we've had a countdown. I've told them, I said, you know, like we're under 24 hours now, guys, like get ready. I'm so pumped. This was memorable. It was incredible. I think I have such a deep connection because of my own experiences with the references that this film gives us, the nostalgia that it evokes, I smiled nonstop the entire movie. And I'm telling you, man, I, it's everything I could have asked for from a Ready Player One adaptation. You know, and anybody who follows me on social media knows that I was incredibly nervous going into this, as often is the case with something that is a beloved property before it gets adapted and I could not have been more satisfied and relieved with how it turned out it is pure 100% awesome ecstasy wow (laughs) see that's something that I knew was going to be hard to live up to (laughs) because you get to see the movies before I do so it's like okay I either avoid your reactions completely or I try to temper my expectations because of course, we don't want to disappoint each other. And the thing about our podcast, 
that we've sort of come to know is that we rarely, if ever, disagree on our reaction to a movie. Sometimes a movie will be like a two to me and it'll be like maybe a three and a half to a four, but we find some middle ground and it creates for some good discussion. This was a movie that I know for both of us, we had high expectations for. We both loved the book. We both were were kids of the 80s. So all these things that we were expecting, you throw Steven Spielberg's name on top of it. And now we're like, okay, you, you're, you're too big to fail at this point. And so walking into the theater, I had the exact same reaction you did, except I did it literally. I walked right out of the theater because, oh, heavens to Betsy, I went to a late feature. Uh, last night, sat down in my chair, got my recliner. The movie started. It was a little blurry. I guess we were getting a free 3D feature, you know, an upgrade. So we were promptly handed 3D glasses and turns out the movie was just glitchy. So 20 minutes into it, they send us to another theater where it's okay then. And so I, I sort of was hit and miss on the first 15 minutes of the movie. A little frustrating. However, the other hour and 45 minutes or two hours that came after that made up for it indefinitely just more fun. I looked at this and I walked away and I said, this is classic. This is vintage Spielberg. This is classic Spielberg. And that's my one word takeaway is classic. I look at a movie like this and I think about Steven Spielberg as a director and I think about the movies that he's made. I mean, the guy is just crazy in terms of the breadth of his storytelling and the movies that he has uh, sat in the director's chair for. And it's all over the place. He's got your ETs. You've got your, um, you got this one, you've got, uh, you've got the, the post, you've got all these different genres of, of movies, but the ones that I gravitate towards sat in the, the, the heart of the eighties that, that he really took me for a fun ride an adventure and Ready Player One, for my benefit, took me back there, not with references necessarily, but with this feeling of like, man, I am just letting myself go for two hours and I'm just enjoying this ride. And we talked a little bit about that last week on about when we were talking Pacific Rim about how much fun a movie can be and should be. In fact, the last two or three weeks we've been talking about that. I think that the more that I'm seeing these movies, these big blockbusters, and the more that I'm seeing the emphasis on the fun ride uh, more than anything else, the more I'm starting to realize, look, this needs to be an important thing. It can't be about how this movie makes you think about the world. Yes, that could be a byproduct. And it is. It's responsible thinking, especially when it comes to the world of you know faith that we live in. But at the same time, Ready Player One accomplished the one thing that I wanted it to do. It entertained me. For two hours, I sat there smiling and holding on to the edge, you know, the the armrest of my seat during during these particular sequences, and I just had a blast with it. I want to go back for the same reasons you do, but also to catch the first fifteen minutes in non blurry vision. <laughs> so they didn't restart the movie. No, the That's it was kinda... it, it's frustrating. And now I in you know I got a free like RPX ticket, oh, like good. a big you know big thing so at some point I'll, I'll use that i may use it for ready player one or something else so wait what was your one word takeaway did i miss you say the actual word because i don't know that you actually specified um it's classic classic so that's fair it was a combination of a movie about nostalgia yeah it was either gonna be classic or vintage so i'm going with classic Ooh, i like vintage better vintage is let's more... use vintage then 
more unique. Like so. So Patrick's one more takeaway is vintage, and mine is ecstasy. So the feel and film review of Ready Player One is it is vintage ecstasy. That should be on the box. I'm telling you, they could <laughs> they could easily use our thing to promo. I think vintage <laughs> ecstasy. That's beauty. That's perfect. I love it. Yeah, well, it's good stuff. all right, cool. Well, let's just get into this now there is so much that i want to talk about with this movie um and i want to start by talking about vintage talking about nostalgia and that is what this film is based on this what is this story is based on going back to the novel it's steeped in referential material right mm-hmm. and this kind of expands on our discussion from episode 102 pacific rim uprising last week about what is the place of blockbusters in cinema. I'll tell you, watching Ready Player One so soon, only a week after Pacific Rim Uprising and two weeks after Tomb Raider, it puts them to shame. Now, Tomb Raider less so. I still really enjoy that film, but Pacific Rim Uprising specifically, it it kind of makes it even worse (laughs) in hindsight because you see what can be done, what can be accomplished at the blockbuster level. And when you have a master like Steven Spielberg, right, behind the the helm. So my question is, is nostalgia a worthy anchor for a film? Or does it need to include heavy thematic depth? And I want to read a quick quote from a buddy of mine, a fellow Seattle film critic named Mike Ward. Uh, He has a site called shouldiseeit.net, I believe. And his reviews are awesome. They give you a yes and a no section that tells you, yes, you should see it if these things, and no, you should probably not see it if these things. And one of his no's said, when you strip away all the nostalgia and the impressive technical aspects, and you really look at what exists here, this is a rather simple movie that we have seen before that leaves very little in doubt. To me... That's a yes, not a no. So I'm curious what you think about nostalgia's place as a driver for plot. Well, I would say that those two things are mutually exclusive. I think you can have both. And I don't think that nostalgia or intertextuality, as we've talked about in the past, should be an anchor for film. I think it cheapens a story. I think it's kind of a cheap and a cheap way of making a movie more impressive than it is. However, I think that there's value in those things, especially when you're ready to look, look for them. Um, You know, to be somewhat meta, we talk about Easter eggs in the movie, Easter eggs in the book. And when we go through ready player one, it's riddled with small little Easter eggs, some at the forefront of the story, some in the background. And there's no doubt in my mind, and there's no doubting the way we feel when we see something that we recognize. When I see Freddy Krueger (laughs) flying through the air, (laughs) being taken down, I mean, there's something really special about that. And it does enhance my viewing experience, but it doesn't and really shouldn't enhance the importance or the impact of the story. The fact is... The stories are not original. Um, then we have to dress them up in some way. And the fact is, stories are refreshed. I think James Harleman, a, a good friend of ours, 
who we've had on the show has said that in his book, Cinemagogue, that, that stories are refreshed. They're not new. There's nothing new under the sun. And Ready Player One is just that. It's a familiar story in a lot of ways. And it has a lot of things that surround it that make it more enjoyable to watch. It's a refreshing story. And so I don't think it should apologize for that because the the point of, I think, most stories is not that they become something different. It's just that they're using an anchor of similar plot and story beats to make a point. And if the point of Ready Player One is to invoke nostalgia or to create this intertextuality, at least as a byproduct, then then so be it. Because it makes me feel good to leave the theater being able to experience all that. Yes, uh, me too. And see, I think that's the key here is it makes me feel good. And it's interesting that I would lean on that as a positive because in a lot of ways in life in general, I would argue the it makes me feel good defense is not a good one, <laughs> right? Like it's it's not always positive to just say, oh, well, I did it because it makes me feel good. In fact, that can be a very negative choice. <laughs> but in this case, man, we're there for entertainment and it, and it does make me feel good. It made me smile. I, I had a constant enjoyment. And I think that the nostalgia being here in this film, the way in which it handles both 80s and current culture is pretty brilliant. Yeah. And for me... This is this movie's not for everybody. And we say this all the time. Every movie is not for everybody. And so I believe that we have to evaluate a film based on as close as we can, taking into account our own preferences, which is very this is a very difficult thing to do, even though I rant about it on Twitter all the time. We have to try and evaluate what the director and the storyteller is trying to do and whether or not they accomplished their goal versus whether or not we liked what they were trying to tell us. Mm -hmm. I fail too. Like I said, I ran on Twitter. I complain about other people, but I do it too. I'm going to own up to it. It's hard. But for me, I think Spielberg and Ernest Klein exceptionally did what they set out to do with this film. And I think that there's enough of a plot there. It gets you from point A to point B. And it does so with a string of referential material, right. but I loved it and it didn't, yeah. it didn't hamstring it at all for me. It didn't make me feel like it was empty personally. Yeah. Well, when I, when I think about that referential material, I, I don't consider it the engine or the anchor. I, I think of it as just intertwined in this story. And so it takes a basic story and definitely enhances it. But isn't that part of the movie experience? Isn't that part of why we go to movies is not to necessarily experience something brand new? I mean, it's one thing to experience the same story over and over again. But when we do it, when we hear it in a refreshing way, like we see Harry Potter is in a lot of ways like Lord of the Rings. It's the hero's quest. But it's done in such a creative way and expanded on that we now have fallen in love with this whole world of the Potterverse equally as much as we've fallen in love with with middle earth i don't know about equally that's not no i said people in general <laughs> people in general are wrong okay well <laughs> just play. Just play. don't get me off topic i'll start rambling but I, I i think there's a there's definitely a point to be made when you rely on that stuff it's it can be very dangerous but what i appreciated about 
the this film adaptation was the book was just overflowing with 80s references and i enjoyed reading about those things and in some ways i wanted to see more of those but i was really pleasantly surprised that we didn't get as much as we did that we got not only a balance of 80s references and more modern day references but that we got a more scaled back set of those things we weren't just bombarded with those things every time you know all the time and every scene so I think a key part of that, honestly, though, is the visual medium. And this is one of the criticisms of of Klein's book. One of the biggest criticisms that I've read is some people say he can't write. He's an amateur. It's a terrible book. He goes on for 10 pages in a row of doing nothing but listing out 80s references. That is true. OK, I enjoy it. But that is a factual statement and probably not the best when it is not narratively strong writing. But in a movie, you don't have to write those words. Every There's so much going on in the background of these scenes that is there that it's, it's moving fast, right? And you're not always going to draw attention to everything. I, one of the, the most exciting things for me about this movie is going back to see it over and over and over again. And that's why I find... I fully believe it's going to be one of those um, almost infinitely rewatchable projects because you can look for more and more Easter eggs. You can be a gunter yourself with this movie. You're watching a race scene and you may have picked up on one, two, three things, but oh, but what about that gun that he randomly is holding in a scene that as he flies by? Well, I want to know where that's from. So I want to go find out. And I think, that it helps, like I said, with visual medium where we don't get bombarded with this list of text, but we have to kind of see them and remember them for ourselves. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, there's an interpretation on the screen that happens between a book and a movie. And that's something that I always think about when it comes to a book and its movie counterpart is the fact that what is going on in my head when I'm reading a book is going to be different than what I see on the screen because one, I'm not the director. This is not my brain giving creative freedom to the people around me to interpret what I'm thinking when I read this book and putting it onto the big screen. And what we're really saying, what I'm really saying is when I watch Ready Player One and enjoy it, what that means to me is that I enjoy the fact that Steven Spielberg and his creative team line up pretty well with my vision of what this world looks like and what these characters are like. And so when I say I like Ready Player One, that's really what I'm saying. I'm saying that, hey, I agree on a lot of the stuff that I'm seeing because it kind of, at least it doesn't necessarily match what's in my head, but it conforms enough to make me go, yeah, I'm with you, Steven. I like what you're doing there. And I think that's where we get kind of a hit or miss when it comes to those two mediums is because we can't resolve what's in our head when we're reading a book that we love with what we see on the screen. That is a very good way to put it, I think. And, and, and that applies pretty much across the board to all adaptations. We keep saying this over and over every time we do one of these. And it's interesting because we both love book-to-movie adaptations. Neither one of us reads nearly as much as we used to before we started this podcast and started watching all these movies constantly. But we both have a, a vast love of the written form and novels. And so we enjoy that. And I think we've discussed a million times having just a conversation about this in general, like this, what makes a good adaptation? And um, we're, we just need to do that. We need to sit down and do that. But 
specifically with Ready Player One, did we like the changes, right? And I, I will tell you, yes, I did. You mentioned just a minute ago that you thought that the lack of 80 references, were, 80s references was a positive thing. And I would have to wholeheartedly agree with you. One of the things that I enjoyed most was the addition of modern stuff. And frankly, it's interesting because that was one of my biggest concerns. I remember sitting in the theater before it started and someone was asking me if I'd read the book and I was giving her my background and some stuff. And I told her one of the things I was in fearing was that this was going to put in current day video game and movies that aren't classics. And so 20 years from now, when we're watching Ready Player One, we aren't going to think of Overwatch being a key component because Overwatch will have faded. It won't be something that's lasting, right? Because all the stuff in the book is somewhat lasting or memorable. And I was worried about that. And I, I told a friend of mine, I said, now ones that I can see being in here, things like Halo, Minecraft, things like that. Well, sure as crap, like the moment we see anything in the oasis like the first thing is minecraft it's like in right there in front of the, on the screen as we're you know zooming in across the landscape and i just i cheered and like hit him on the side i was like look i was right um but that's what i think is awesome because patrick this was a book that as much as i wanted my kids to read i never got around to forcing them or pushing them to do it as much because i knew that they couldn't relate to it in the same way that i did because you and i grew up in the 80s we understood 90% of these references in this book. They weren't going to have that. Now what you have is a movie that has beautifully blended the 80s, the 90s, and the 2000s so that multiple generations have the nostalgia reaction and can react and relate and enjoy the same experience. It's, it's, it's awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think what happens is you have connection with multiple generations. And I think ready player one, because it centered itself on the eighties, it had a chance to just reference all things eighties. Whereas the movie, I think really emphasized the gameplay of the whole thing. I mean, yes, the Oasis was the big supporting actor of both the book and the movie. But what I, what, what I felt like the difference between the book and the movie is that the movie was really, heavy handed on the gaming aspect of it, you know, referencing more modern games. Uh, whereas the book did a lot with music, video games, TV shows, movies, you know, the, the competition, all the different challenges was a mix and mash of everything eighties from the, from the book standpoint, whereas the movie was like, let's create more of an environment that is driven by the gamers world. And I think that's a lot of what people are picking up and why it may not be accessible to a lot of people in general, where it's a gamer's movie. I mean, I can, I can agree with that to an extent. I think it's, I, I think it's partially that, but I'm not a gamer. I mean, I'm a, I'm a casual gamer. I'm not one who is up on the latest titles. I'm occasionally on humble bundle here and there. If something catches my eye, but I, I consider myself a casual gamer. I'll, I'll do it every once in a while. And I, didn't find any kind of separation from the, the, the people in this film. I didn't feel like, Oh, well, I don't get that. I mean, that must be a gamer thing. No, right. it, it was very much feel isolated. Exactly. I felt like it was a, it was an enjoyable movie that I connected with on enough levels that the things that might've gone over my head, I would love to have somebody with me to say, Hey, what was that? 
that's because in the bar scene is a perfect example when they are in the club or bar, whatever it is, you see characters of all different types of things. You see Harley Quinn and Deathstroke, mm-hmm. which you can relate to. Sure. You also see the back of Laura Croft standing at the bar from Tomb Raider, right? So you've got a game reference. You've got comic reference. You've got other characters in there from movies. So it, it's, it is, it's, it's really masterfully done. I, I just, I loved how they did that. Well, it's the spirit of what the book is doing that I think exists in the movie. And if I'm going to give a short answer, uh, apart from a good discussion that we could have, that's what makes a good adaptation is if you keep the spirit of what the book is trying to do with its characters and with, with its themes and with its plot, if it can adapt, if it can exist successfully in a film, you're doing something right. So speaking of that, that's something that was changed, right? This book and movie are, this is a different story, essentially. And we're going to try to bounce around here and not give many book spoilers. We apologize in advance if that happens. Um, I'm going to be very intentional and try not to spoil something major as I, but I'm going to talk about it uh, in a way around, talk around it. One of the things I really like is that uh, there's th- these two characters, Dido and Shido, um, who are these Asian gunters that are friends of Parsival and ultimately members of this high five clan that exists in the end. Something happens to them in the novelization that I was incredibly pleased did not happen to them in the movie. I like that it happened in the book because of the way the story went. The story was a little bit darker and a little bit more serious with the real world stuff than it was in the movie. And with the movie being PG 13 and being really marketed for all ages, I just thought that was a great choice to leave that, leave those characters and give them to us in a way that was different. Did you like that change? I did. Um, I don't recall the details of that portion of it, but I remember there being a difference. And I remember there, there were other portions of the book that did not make it into the movie, but even more so there were portions of the book that were completely changed in terms of like, Oh, this plot point is now experienced in this way. And um, we'll talk about that. I think when we get to our connecting point, but it made sense. And what happens, I think, when you talk about a movie that makes these changes is are the changes made in a way that not only makes sense to the story, ultimately, but also to the audience that's experiencing them. And I don't feel like any of these changes were were made uh, without intent. I felt like each change was made for a purpose. That's where I think a lot of movies fail is what they fail in is that they try to make these arbitrary changes just to try to impress their audience in some way, shape or form. And it doesn't further the plot. It doesn't make anything better or worse. I feel like Spielberg and his team said, look, we're going to do this. And this is why when you have a why behind that, to me, that's what makes it effective for me. Perfect. I completely agree. And the first gate's a perfect example of that. So the first and second gate or key are completely different than they are in the book. They're hundred percent creations, uh, recreations here. And, and that Ernest Klein was involved in the screenplay along with Zach Penn. So this has his buy off. He knew that this was going to be changed for the movie. And I should have not doubted that when I, I knew that was going to happen a long time ago and I still was worried and I shouldn't have been obviously, but what they did differently is the first gate 
in the book. One of the, well, one of the things is that Wade is actually in school. And I kind of wish that would have been a little bit more prominent in the movie because I feel like it informs kind of how old their characters are and what they're actually doing. It feels like they're just there having fun. But in this world, kids actually go to school in the Oasis. That's part of their lives. And on Wade's school planet, he ends up solving the first gate. And it involves an old Dungeons and Dragons uh, book, tome, and a story in it. And it also involves the video game Joust, which has ostriches with jousting lances. These are two pretty obscure references that not very many people are going to relate to. The D&D one, more gamers, more more people will understand D&D, but they may not have any kind of knowledge of that specific tome that was being used in the book during that gate. So to contrast that, they change it up and instead we get a race very reminiscent of any video game you may have played with Mario Kart references. We have a, an opportunity to give us a ton of different movie cars. There's, you know, obviously the DeLorean. There's the an old Batmobile. I've seen a kit, a uh, Knight Rider car in there. There's, a, I don't remember what else is in there. I think there might even be a Speed Racer car in there. But there is, there is like a wealth of different types of vehicles. There's an A-Team van. That was one of them. And then you get King Kong as part of that as well. And so you really get to throw in a bunch of references that pretty much everyone will know. And the same thing goes on as we progress with the different gates and how they change things up throughout the story. And I I really just, I thought it was so incredible because for me, I love the book. I've read it as many times as I've read almost anything else, but I also love the movie. And I now have two unique tellings of the same story. They both go from the same point A to the same point B but they do it in such a different way that I can enjoy them equally and I don't have to choose one. And it's awesome. Well, and to your point, when you describe the first gate and not that you're trying to be an incredible storyteller in, in how you're telling that, but that would seem visually boring to me to watch what, what he does in the book Absolutely. on the screen. It would have but, been, yeah. But who doesn't like a race where you're trying to fend off a T-Rex and King Kong? Uh, you know, it's just... That's what you want to see. And it's exciting. And again, that's where you take advantage of the cinematic storytelling is you create visuals that really, really get your senses heightened. Uh, one of the things that I was a little disappointed in, in our RPX theater, the, the sound was loud. I mean, our seats were vibrating. I mean, that's how, just how just big it was having to leave that theater and going to a regular one. I was a little disappointed because we, had to, we were watching the, the race again and I was like, come on. Oh, you worried me. See, my second viewing tomorrow night is actually going to be an RPX and I thought you were going to complain about it. Now I'm excited. No, no, no. I'm saying that the RPX sound was phenomenal. Had I not had the, the jolting like vibration of the, of the screen, it would have been perfect. But yeah, I, I think that experiencing things visually like, like a race are not only familiar, but they're also just fun to look at. And I think that they make more sense to, to see those things than to, to see what we experienced in the book. So a couple other big changes that I would note are the way in which Wade meets Artemis. That's kind of a big deal. So they don't really meet. It's also a good change. Again, visually, like you're talking about in the book, Wade, once he gets some money, he moves himself to an apartment 
and he just lives in his apartment like full time. That's all he does. You know, he has this it fully fleshed out expensive haptic suit. And that's where most of the film plays out is him in his apartment going around in the Oasis. What they needed to do was give us some of that live action. And so by implementing the parts with Artemis sooner, where he meets her in real life, and they're actually kind of going through these things together, I thought that was really well done. And it gives us a chance to to see Ty Sheridan and Olivia Cook not in CGI. And I got to tell you, whether in CGI or in real life form, Olivia Cook is one to watch. That girl can act. I loved her to death. Oh my gosh. I fell in love with her. And I had forgotten that my love for her started with me and Earl and the dying girl. She oh, was. Yeah, the, that's right. Oh, I was just. And like, Ty Sheridan, I love from Mud. He's the young yeah. boy in Mud. Yeah. Also yeah. Cyclops. Yeah. <laughs> that meme you shared on social media was fantastic. Him with the visor. Yeah. yeah it's so funny. Thing. Yeah. But they have great chemistry. And, and I think that their relationship, regardless of where it went, I would have been satisfied with. And, and part of me would have been satisfied had they not become romantic. But of course, that was not going to be the case because early on, he was like, I'm in love with you. And I love just the way that she responds to that. And it, it makes for a nice little subplot uh, throughout the rest of the movie with his affection for her and for her and, uh, and, and fighting that, you know, falling in love with someone that he doesn't really know and then finally getting to meet her. Well, it also, Wade is the one who is imprisoned. Uh, in the book, not Artemis. And I think it's pretty cool that making that change, it gives her character a lot of agency because she chooses to go forth and do what she does. She risks herself to go take Sorrento's rig and get into the Oasis and try to start hacking and getting in, you know, behind the scenes and faking being an IOI member and all that stuff and a sidekick. You know, she was an equal part in the story, which she is in the book as well. It's just in a different way. Well, and that's that's driven by the fact that the story is being told from Wade's point of view in the book. It's kind of like Katniss in in the Hunger Games. And that's something else that makes an adapt adaptation difficult is when your character is first person in a book and you have to make that a third person uh, story, uh, you're going to deal with some of those challenges because you're either going to fill up your film with voiceovers, which is kind of annoying, or you're going to have to make some sacrifices in terms of dialogue and what people might be thinking. And so, yeah, I think that the spirit of her character that lived in the book made itself known and fully present in the movie in just a different kind of way. I also really like the, way the relationship with H is portrayed, I felt like it was incredibly honorable to the book and, mm -hmm. and matched up very well with what we see uh, with their best friendship and how that works out. I got to say, that's something that's important to me is that like I can see myself so much in this world because I've lived it. I have played MMOs, massively multiplayer online games a lot. And I can see both the dangers of them. I've, I've I've lived being too obsessive to where I did ignore real life things at times. And I had to understand that in, in some hard ways and learn some lessons. But I've also experienced the incredible joy that comes from meeting someone online and becoming friends. I mean, I have friends to this day that have been close now for a decade, one of which I've met multiple times. In fact, I stayed with him. It is, you know, on my way to California or I'm sorry, on my way to Arkansas last year. 
Um, when we passed through Colorado, we stayed with he and his family for for a week total, just hanging out because that's the relationship we formed playing an MMO together. You know, we are real life friends who care about our our actual day to day lives, and so it's not all negative. This this world is not a fully negative thing, and I think that the film did a good job of showing that with the relationship with H. Yeah, to a lot of you know to an extent that. He may not know what H looks like. He may not know her gender. And I love, I love that line. I love when she, that's from the book when she's she tells him, "Well, you don't know who I am. I could be, you know, a you know three hundred pound fat black guy named Chucky or Chuck, you know, living in my mom's basement." And then, of course, the beautiful revealing scene when he finds out who she is and doesn't care. Yeah, um, I thought all that played out really well. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that I think the movies, if you had to pick a one word theme. Nobody has to do that. I do that. But I would say community or, or common ground, I think is something that, that this movie and the book actually hit on is this idea that the virtual world brings people together. The Oasis brings people together. And in spite of the factions that are created um, as a result of the contest, you find common ground knowing that you have these avatars that are still trying to get along with one another and and you you make those friendships friendships that you wouldn't otherwise find in the real world because you're either separated by geography or separated by uh demographic or separated by economic status the oasis i don't know if ernest klein was doing this intentionally but i feel like the oasis is the is the great neutralizer you know that that james halliday was trying to trying to get a video game is something that everybody can play and he wanted everybody to play it and participate in it. It it was the common ground for everyone that was part of it. And of course, in the book, there's a lot more expansion on it. I'm like you, I'm glad the book exists as well as the movie because you couldn't put everything that was so magical and beautiful about the book in the movie. And if you did try to do that, it would either be way too long or it'd be really, really hard to follow. And yeah. so I, I think you got the best of both worlds in these two mediums mm-hmm. and that if you want to experience the essence of what Ready Player One is about, watch the movie. But then if you want to get a history and you want to find the in-depth, uh, just beauty of Ready Player One, read the book and be able to reconcile the differences in your head, at, <laughs> just knowing that going in. Exactly both. And I'm going to read the book again you know, after a couple of viewings of the film, I'm excited to read the book again, honestly. So, I mean, it's, it's wonderful. Um, what do we think about, so I thought Sorrento was, was great. I love Ben Mendelsohn a lot. Um, he was wonderful in Darkest Hour last year, I thought. And so this is a totally different role for him, this villain role, but I thought he was a great Sorrento. Some of these things that, I mean, this is the thing, man, and we're going to get into criticisms here in a second. I've, I've heard people complaining about how it's he's a terrible villain because he leaves his password on his rig. It makes me want to scream. Okay. Like that is the point. <laughs> he's yes. He's a terrible, like that. Duh. Like it's his character. It's not a poor screenwriting choice that they messed up. Like it's intentional because he's so overconfident and he doesn't care. Right. Yeah. He doesn't think it matters. It's also a really funny password. Um, but I thought he was really great. And then Irock. So Irock is a new character. Um, and I thought that the, the scenes with him were meant to be kind of comedic relief and they played out really well. He had some great kind of one line zingers. He did. 
Irock was probably my favorite supporting character. And it's because of the comic relief, because of the the moments where I feel like he both takes himself incredibly seriously and incredibly doesn't at the same time. Uh, his design was pretty fantastic. Super cool. And, Super cool. And, and this is me. I mean, you're you're better at this than I am when it comes to remembering details of the book. I actually thought he was a character from the book. I didn't know he was oh, new. Perhaps I'm wrong. I don't remember. Maybe I forgot that. We'll have to, <laughs> we'll have to look that up. But I, I thought that I remembered him being a uh, a character from the book because of the fact that Sorrento had somebody to to talk to. But both those guys in general, you the fact is Sorrento's character is is not just overconfident, but he even says himself, I'm a businessman, first and foremost. Like he's not a gamer. He's not part of these things. So the fact that he does leave his password where it does, it's not it's it's not that he's dumb. It's just that a businessman wouldn't think about that. I mean, it's not, he's not thinking about the gamer aspect of it. You're right. He was in the book. Um, okay. I forgot all that. Yeah. Cause he, he called Wade Captain No Credits. Okay. Uh, he was in the basement where they would meet up. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he actually is in there and he's kind of, he tipped off Sorrento, um, because of his forum posts. That's how Sorrento and the Sixers end up finding that first key. That's right. He's 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 on Wade's school planet with him. So I, yeah. he was in the book. Okay, but definitely didn't envision him like I did, like I got him in the film. But I love well, the character. Too. Well, he's, yeah, he's a standout character to me for sure. All right. Well, I'm trying to think if there's anything else we need to like cover than that. Um, maybe we'll come back to it if we if we think of anything. Let's. I want to mention. I want What about the story? The plot. Because we we talked about kind of a lot of the fun things, and, and we've talked somewhat through this. There's a line in the book that says somebody I can't remember who says it, but it says people come to the osis for all the things they can do, but they stay for the things they can be. And I thought that was really essential to the plot of Ready Player One. I mean, this is a dystopian world that is broken down; that many cities are completely leveled. Right, the ones that do exist are. Like Columbus, like we see, like with these stacks, um, and everybody's funneled into car. Everybody's funneled into Columbus in these big cities, but on the outskirts, they live in these like stacked up trailers. And it's just, it's very, we don't know exactly why, but the world is run down and completely demolished. And so everybody's kind of escaping and living their lives, working and enjoying everything in this fictional space. And one of the things I enjoyed about the story was. The fact that it comes full circle with Halliday and Wade ultimately shutting down the Oasis for two days a week um, and giving us that message that, hey, this is fun. Because guess what? VR is a big thing right now, mm-hmm. and it's getting bigger and bigger. And as it becomes more accessible and costly or less costly, more people will be able to experience it. I've experienced it, and it is actually jaw-dropping and amazing. I couldn't believe it and i wanted to rush out and buy it and then i saw the price and i was like nope not yet but once we can more people are going to do this so ready player one world is not that far off as far as the oasis concept and so it's something we need to deal with and reconcile with and i think seeing both its positives and its negatives was a great thing and giving us like i said that message that it you need to stay you need you can enjoy this stuff but you gotta unplug at times i like that yeah the the thing that I'm still trying to reconcile, and maybe this is explained more in the book, 
I think the movie has the potential to make a causal explanation of one thing for the other. In other words, we see this contrast between the Oasis and the real world. And we see the beauty of the Oasis and the rundownness of the real world. And it would be really easy for us to say, we've abandoned the real world for the sake of the Oasis. I don't think that's what the film is trying to say. I think there are two worlds that it, that are coexisting, but one not because of the other. I feel like if the movie is saying anything, it's that the Oasis is a place for exploration and a, and a place to help us find out more of who we can be to help us more in the real world. I think that would alter the story too much if we spent more time in the real world, but I don't, there's a, there's definitely a danger there and I can see how if there's criticism out there, there could be an argument made for, Hey, look, the Oasis is essentially Elysium <laughs> where you've got the forgotten people that may or may not be able to get their haptic, haptic suits. Yeah. yeah. And they're just left out. You could definitely make that argument. The movie doesn't spend enough time exploring that portion of it. So I'm not going to give it justification and say, yeah, that's what it's doing, but it definitely has the ability to, uh, to do that. And that's, that's risky because that, that can create a negative message from a storytelling standpoint. However, I didn't pick up on that more than I picked up on the, you know, the, the Willy Wonka S type thing. Uh, in fact, I think the the movie itself in the trailers, it, it, it calls attention to that. It calls attention to the fact that one of the characters even says um, Halliday was basically the Willy Wonka of the gaming world. And so the, the, the movie does not apologize for being uh, for, for playing in that, in that story at all. And, and I, and I was okay with that. And I think the themes behind that, that exist in Ready Player One are, are, are good. I like them. Yeah, me too. I, so that hits on some criticisms and I'd like to just go over a few of them that I've kind of found myself <laughs> confronting online this past few days. We'll see how this plays out. Um, our good friend, Andrew Dice of Screen Rant, uh, who's a guest on many of our episodes. Um, we did an episode with him early on in the podcast uh, called Negative Fan Reaction or something like that, Negative Film Criticism and Fan Rage or something. And it was a lot like this. Uh, he spent a lot of time kind of fighting off people who were criticizing Batman v Superman for various reasons. And I feel like I might end up doing that with Ready Player One. One of the things that I read uh, came from Alyssa Wilkinson, who's a critic. Uh, she writes for Box.com. I really respect her. love her writing. She's amazing at um, just crafting a narrative. It's, it's, a, it's a talent, and she has it. She and I were engaged in this conversation, and, and it boiled down to one of the things she was saying is that she was distracted during the movie. Now, she went in with no knowledge and no uh, no knowledge of the book and no, no comparison for most of the pop culture references. So she admitted up front that, that was not, she was not the target demographic. She didn't have that, ooh, oh, look at this. This is cool factor going on all the time. But she felt very distracted by the situation in the real world and the fact that in this dystopian society, we weren't dealing with the problems in the real world. At the end of the film, Wade just 
takes control of the Oasis and shuts it down for a couple of days a week. And we never actually deal with what, what are the problems that have us wanting to live in this world and that all these people are in suffering. And we see the shot in the beginning that speaks to that, where you see everybody in the stacks, like living in their little houses, doing their own little tasks all online. Like, why are we accepting of that and not trying to fix the real world with your money and your power and all these things you achieved? And I understood where she was coming from. But I really don't think that's a fair criticism of this film and this story because that's not the story we're focusing on telling. And in my opinion, if the story of Ready Player One involved trying to solve that problem and then it was not handled in a positive way or there were missteps or it wasn't fully fleshed out, but it tried that it was intended to solve that problem, that would be a criticism. But I don't think that them ignoring that is a, is a problem because that's not the story we're telling. We're telling the hero's quest inside the Oasis primarily, the story of Wade going from this point A to point B to save it and find an Easter egg. We're not trying to tell the broader, big story of what's wrong with the world. It's kind of the Hunger Games. We're not telling Mockingjay where we're fighting the revolution. Does that make sense? It does, and I'm... I'm on the fence between you and her's opinion because the fact is when you're shown something in a story, you're going to be curious about it. And so when you're shown the Oasis, you want to find out as much as you can about it and all the different rooms and passages and secrets that the Oasis has. And we get that 75% of the film is inside the Oasis as it should be. Because again, the Oasis is the best supporting actor, I think, that that doesn't have any lines. The problem is, is that we see enough of the real world that we ask that question, what's going on here? And I don't know what the solution is, because I don't think we can stay in the Oasis all the time, because we forget the, we forget the human aspect of it. We forget the community in the real world, and we don't get the intimate moments uh, between between Z and, and Artemis uh, in the real world. We don't get that moment where he meets H in the real world uh, if we didn't have that. And so it's risky. It's, it's a very slippery slope because when you're seeing a beautiful world juxtaposed against a really crappy one, you're naturally going to ask what happened. And then when you start seeing more emphasis put in this world that's virtual, then you start asking the question, why are we not doing something about it? So in that sense, I agree with Alyssa's statement, especially the fact that she doesn't have a, a baseline by you know reading the book. She doesn't have that kind of uh, perspective. However, I do agree with you in that the story that's being told is not about how do we fix the real world using the Oasis. It's about James Halliday having a contest that has been going on for years and years and years and years that we are just now being dropped in to see a big substantial change because uh, Parzival has found the first gate or he's discovered that. And that's what the book's doing. I, I never once question in the book or really in the movie, hey, what happened here? I was always just enthralled with the game itself. And I think that's where the movie really succeeds is it keeps me interested in the game 
Like I was ready to get to the next gate. I was ready to see what the next challenge was going to be. And the book does that too. It didn't focus on the real world. The real world was a, it wasn't even a response. It the was a catalyst to the fact that the Oasis exists. That's it all. was, yes, it was, it was, yes, it was exactly that. Yeah. So I mean, I, I'm glad we talked about, it. I think I just, I just don't want people And to be fair. I mean, again, I really respect Alyssa's opinions always. She gave the movie three out of five stars. So it's not like she hated it and completely trashed the movie for that one thing. It was just that that was a big part of her review. And so it was a little, I just, it's something I think that people need to look at a little bit more deep and not necessarily ding the creator for not having the same vision as you might want them to have um, going in. Another criticism that I have read a lot about this is, Kind of, we've already maybe a little bit refuted it, but it's this idea, um, Sarah, another critic here in Seattle, moviefreak.com, in her review, she writes revol- that it revolves around the fact that only true pop culture enthusiasts have the right to say anything of value about any of the beloved properties that they passionately dissect and study. It is a story where to disagree with any of these true fans is to be considered an imposter and a fake where dissent or debate simply is not allowed. I wholeheartedly disagree. That's not the tone for the movie that I get at all. And I can't think of one example in this story, in the book or the movie where people are isolated or ostracized or pushed away for not being enough of a fan. Can you? No, but I'm, is that, is that what she's saying in her, in her criticism. Cause I wasn't. Yes. Okay. I didn't pick up on that really at all. Um, to me, in fact, the climax of the movie was a unification of all these folks in the Oasis. I, I never thought that everyone in the Oasis was a gamer because the Oasis is meant to be a place where people can do more than just game. I mean, they, they shop, they, you know, from the book standpoint, they go to school. Uh, the Oasis is another world. It's not, it contains a game <laughs> and the, the result of the game winning the game gives you full control of the Oasis, but the Oasis itself was for anybody that wanted to go to a virtual world. And the club scene is a fantastic example. There were people dancing. They weren't playing video games. They were avatars living a life that was different than the one they had in the real world. But even from the very beginning, as we see that great tracking shot of, of Wade, you know, walking through the stacks, we see different people uh, living out their own little fantasies, but those aren't gamers. That woman pole dancing, that, that heavy set woman pole dancing. I would not think that she's a, a gamer. And I, I don't think the movie ever makes a point in saying only gamers are allowed to experience this world. Again, I could be off in the refute of, of, of Sarah's criticism, but I didn't see that at all. Yeah, I, I just didn't either. And I, I can, I hear this a lot, you know, like this is a fan thing and the fans are toxic and it can be combative because they're trying to protect their properties and their thing that they love. And that, that is absolutely true. That can happen. And I mean, we can't speak for everybody in the world. Like there may be fans of this movie and stuff out there that, that do that with this property, but I did not see characters in this property in this story doing that to other characters or such. So that was a little bit of a, a weird one for me. Um, one other thing, 
that it would be unfair not to mention is uh, TJ Miller, who voices IROC, has kind of been caught up in the Me Too movement uh, toward the end of the last year. He was uh, accused by uh, a young lady of hitting her and sexually assaulting her. And then uh, over the course of time, a few more allegations of the same have come up. Uh, it's been mentioned by several fellow comedians that he's said things about joked about being violent to women in private to the point where they didn't want to work with him. And despite these, it's never really grabbed the public attention in the same way that maybe Kevin Spacey's stuff did, or some of the other folks that have kind of been written out of Hollywood pretty darn fast. Obviously Kevin Spacey was removed from all the money in the world, the Ridley Scott movie. That was a a credible undertaking. And so um, also, T.G. Miller has been accused by uh, a critic in Chicago whom I'm friends with online uh, named Danielle, and she is trans, and uh, T.G. Miller wrote her some very angry messages and very hateful messages, and I've read them, and I can say they were not nice. They were nothing that I would personally endorse the way in which he is speaking to her, and so – there's been a bit of an issue with that. And I know she personally had a hard time watching this and hearing his voice. It was a trigger for her. And so it's unfortunate in a lot of ways. Um, I am a full believer in this whole me too movement and fair treatment. You know, uh, accusations are made. He has denied them. Where do we go from there? I don't know. Cause you're at an impasse. Somebody's got a, somebody's lying <laughs> and it's, it's unfortunate, but uh, you know, they could have removed his voice, could have replaced him. It probably wouldn't have hurt the movie. And so that is probably a poor decision in a lot of ways. I don't know, but it is, it's just, it's not something I wanted to gloss over. Um, he's also about to star in Deadpool two and hasn't been removed from that movie. And we'll see what happens with him going forward. Yeah. Here, here's where my ignorance is probably, um, in the spotlight. I didn't know that he was IROC until after I saw the movie. And so I didn't have that frame of reference to be able to kind of make that thing, make that kind of connection. I'm also not a woman. I'm a white male. And so my emotional effect connection with that is obviously very different. Um, It's, it's, it's a difficult thing to separate. Uh, We talked about the Casey Affleck issue when he was, nominated for best actor uh, amidst the, the allegations against him. And do you asking the question, do you vote for someone based on their performance and their integrity as a human being or just their performance? And um, it's a difficult thing to, to come to a, to a decision on. Um, and for anybody who is either directly connected to a person like that, or who is connected to, um, a, an ideology like, like that, like the me too movement and sees Miller as a predator or in some ways, just a dangerous individual watching ready player one knowingly is going to influence your opinion of the movie. I can't give this movie a full five stars because I missed 15 minutes of it. I didn't capture the full the full impact of it. It will probably end up becoming a five-star movie because I will see it again. But the trophy room. I know. 
maybe the conversation will lead me there by the end of the by the end of the night. The the point being is that we have we have subjective situations and moments that that affect how we experience a movie, whether it's an outside influence like the history of an actor or or whatever, that's always going to give us some kind of subjectivity. And, you know, whether, you know, even you mentioned it when you went to go see Blade Runner 2049 for the first, you know, the first time around that you didn't really care for it, but you were also having to leave in the middle of work and then go back to work. So there are these, there are these, these situations, these circumstances that affect how we experience a movie. And, and sadly, knowing and, and in some ways experiencing the, the tragedy that is just rotten people definitely have an effect on, on how we, uh, how we experience something like that. And it's, it's not fair to the movie. It's not fair to the creative team and everybody that puts something together, but there is definitely a responsibility there that had you replaced his voice with someone else. I think someone else could have equally done a good job of giving I rock that kind of life. I don't think it was all on TJ Miller. I think it right. was on the writing equally as much in the, and not just the delivery. So it, it could have, la- it could have been just as great without him. Um, and I, yeah, I would have said, you know, remove him because it's what at the most, maybe 15 lines and, and, and yeah, just be done with it. But, uh, you know, for someone who did not make that connection until after the movie, obviously I didn't have that kind of, um, distance from it. All right. Well, before we get to our connecting point, there's one big thing left that we really need to talk about. Maybe two that's references. (laughs) So Patrick, normally I take two pages or one page front and back of notes during my screenings at most. I will jot things down, usually just sentence starters or quick little bullet points to try and remember when I come back to writing a review and making notes for the podcast later. This film, I ended up with two full front and back pages um, where I was into the margins and scribbling on top of each other, trying to get everything down. Um, my buddy Andy that I took the movie with me was laughing at me afterwards because he said, yeah, every time we saw something cool, like I would like hit you and it seemed like you were like trying to write it down. And I do, I have a paragraph full of like one word references where I was trying to, but then I came back and I looked online later and I was trying to figure out what a gun was at one point that Parsifal was holding. And I found like somebody who'd found 120 references in a two in a two minute and 21 second trailer. And I realized that my attempt was pretty futile. That's why I'm excited to get this movie and be able to pause it. But that being said, let's go over some of our favorites, okay? Um, so I'm going to start off. I, so as a movie geek, I thought it was incredibly cool that we got at least two that I know of very distinct classic film references. Um, one is to a, It's a Wonderful Life, where uh, a character says, uh, no man is, oh my gosh, why am I blanking? What is it? I'm going to leave you hanging. No, no man is a a failure. Yes. Friends. friends. Yeah. And it's actually I rock who says that it's probably my favorite line of of his. Cause when he said it, I just freaked out. Cause that's movies like in my top five of all time. And, uh, and then citizen Kane gets a reference. There's a reference to Rosebud in this movie. And I just died. Cause I was like, you know, no, so many people aren't going to get that. And this, it speaks to the brilliance of this movie. Right. And the way that they merged all of these different referential material, my son and my daughter, they're going to love this film just as much as I do, but that one's going to go, they're not, that's just going to go right past them. They're not even going to register what Rosebud is. But for me, it meant something. Um, let's bounce back and forth. I got a lot, but what, what was another one for you? 
I well, I'll just give my biggest first step and foremost is the Zemeckis cube. Oh yeah. I, I have no idea if that was in the book, but I thought it was a fantastic little tribute to Robert Zemeckis and Back to the Future. And when I found out what it was, I thought that was well, Zemeckis, that's cool. And then when you find out what it actually did, it's like, oh, that's brilliant, where it makes time go back like thirty seconds. Sixty from, seconds. Or sixty yeah. seconds, yeah. So oh, yeah, yeah, that when I saw that I was like, that's the biggest smile of the movie for me. Super cool. Um, I'll knock off a few more. I thought, uh, the, we're not going to take it song being used at the end was great use of, of that. The whole soundtrack is excellent to me. Yeah. I thought it was wonderful. There are some joust ostrich riders in that final battle. I mean, we could go, we could spend an hour listing off characters in that final battle that are, it's amazing, but not having done joust in the first gate to get the key. Mm-hmm. I thought it was cool that they kind of brought that back there in the final battle. And then Another big one for me was Star Wars. Did you catch the star big to me? It was like glaring Star Wars scene that that was recreated in the movie. I did not actually. Okay. I was excited about this one. I thought I was cool because I found it. Um, When there's a moment where Artemis is watching things happen from afar and they're trying to shut down the shield. Ha 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 ha. And there's a shot where Artemis is behind a pillar and she's rotating behind the pillar, moving to keep herself not exposed to the guards that are, that are watching. And she's not quite on a bridge, but it's very similar to Obi-Wan trying to shut down the shield generator and the death star. It's exact same sequence. The exact same point is happening. Plot point. It's brilliant. And when you watch it again and you see it, you're going to be like, Oh my gosh. And I just, I was like shaking in my seat, freaking out when I saw it. It was so cool. That's awesome. I did not notice that at all. I'll have to, that's definitely one I'll have to revisit uh, or at least look for when I revisit the movie. Did you, uh, anything else stick out to you? Well, I got to tell you, I mean, just the overall, I mean, nothing specifically outside of the Zemeckis cube. I think for me, it was just the little tributes to the 80s i love holidays the the thing that i liked uh, was holiday's space invader shirt uh having him wear that and then seeing his him and his kid later on or him his younger self at the very end of the movie uh, being you know parzival says holiday and they both turn around they're both wearing a version of the space invader shirt i thought that was pretty great uh, you mentioned the soundtrack i thought that there's something about we could, we could say that the soundtrack's awesome timing of the songs i think was really great like i was expecting jump to be the very first song of the movie and it was perfect for those opening credits um but uh but just overall all whole movie was a giant reference to movie and game love for me yeah i it absolutely was um i'll wrap up with a couple more i I really like this isn't really a reference but when shoto is meeting everyone and they're realizing how young he is. It's great sequence. Uh, the, he has an awesome line where he says, should I wear a sign that says I'm 11, please kill me. I laughed out loud <laughs> at that point. That was wonderful. Um, specifically with Shoto and Dido, I think, did I mention this? But like, I, uh, we have an, a friend, Matt Fletcher, who I referenced earlier in his quote, and um, he's an Asian American and he particularly loved the fact of how these characters were portrayed. He said it really reminded him of his childhood the way that they acted, um, the things that they were into. At one point, one of the two characters uh, turns into Gundam uh, from an anime that he grew up watching and loving. And so that really resonated with him. And I, I thought that was great. I thought it was a, a awesome balance culturally uh, of not 
like trying to force this, but you know, making it seamlessly integrated into the story, various different cultures and how they experience pop culture that we're referencing. Yeah. Um, but a couple others, uh, the biggest one being Chucky. Uh, so I always look for, I always look for the F word in a PG 13 movie because you're allowed one by the ratings board. And so I always want to know, is it used effectively? Do they get their money for that one F word? And they got it. Okay. Cause when he says it's effing Chucky, like I died, this doll was the scariest thing to me growing up when I was in elementary school. This is like the one series I couldn't watch. I, I still have not gone back and revisited it. I will not do it. I hate this doll. So I fully understood <laughs> what was going on in their minds when they said that. And I thought that was great. <laughs> I also like the uh, the Iron Giant. Oh or, yes. And then was it? I guess was it Voltron? No, was it or the? Is it? Maybe that was the gun. Gun. There's Gundam. It's Gundam. Gundam. Okay, yeah, that's, see that. Th- these are, and this this is this is where not knowing everything about everything, I'm always going to miss some things. So it's the next time I go or the next time I experience this, um, I want to see it with somebody who knows more of this stuff. Like if you and I ever got a chance to see it together, you could say, Hey, that's so-and-so, or that's this, uh, because I just saw Voltron. (laughs) That makes sense. They're similar looking. Um, and then uh, I guess my last two would be when Artemis meets, Z in the library area and she's dressed as Goro and then a chest busting alien comes out of her thing. That was so hilarious. And then the last one is just the way in which they use kind of an inception slash matrix uh, to fake out Sorrento by making him think that he's in the Oasis. I love that because that was very clear and obvious that that's what they were doing and referencing. Um, That was, that was just super cool for me. Um, so last thing, I guess, before connecting point would be Halliday's room. Great sequence to me. I, I liked Halliday's portrayal in this film, even though he's kind of like old Garth, basically. But <laughs> the movie, I think, sets itself up for a sequel. Pretty darn obviously with the way that he asks him, is he dead? Yes. Are you, you know, how are you here? Does it kind of, does vague, doesn't really answer the question about what's how Halliday is doing what he's doing in doing this game or presenting this, this hunt for the egg. And so it, to me opens it up self up for a sequel and it's going to make a lot of money. It's a blockbuster. That's the thing that happens these days. And Ernest Klein has said that he's open to that as well. What do you think? Do you, do you want one? Um, yes and no. Obviously ready player two would be a great title for a sequel. Like seriously, the best title ever. If they, if they called it anything else, I'd be angry. Yeah, Ready Player One, a Star Wars story, something like that. No, we have a, a friend of ours uh, named Jacob who had mentioned that it's a no-brainer that a sequel should be the case. And I, I halfway agree with that. The thing is, the magic from Ready Player One and everything that is a part of the story, I don't know that you can go back to the well on those types of things. I think it needs to be something very distinctly different in terms of a, a fresh story. It might not be a brand new one or, or some kind of mind blowing new idea, but it needs to be distinctly different. It can't go back and, and try to tap into what I think ready player one was giving us in terms of uh, referential material in terms of just lots of, I mean, it, it needs to be fun for sure, but I feel like it, 
it has the potential to turn into Toy Story 4 in that right. it it is just being made to be a cash cow and I don't want that. I want I want it to be a well thought out story and one that makes sense. Again, if we're going to change the story from the book to a movie because of its intent, let's give the sequel some intent too. I mean, yes, the openness of the sequel is there, but I need it to make sense. You know, don't just say, Oh, it's open for a sequel. That must mean we should get one. No, no, I disagree. I think leave it open and leave us wondering. And that's something, there's something nice about that or really, really follow through with what the next chapter of this, uh, this story is going to be. I wholeheartedly agree with that. I think that the, smart place to take it if they did this would be to deal with the real world scenario and what's going on in the real world. Of course, you would have to find a way to probably mix in the solution to happening within the Oasis so that you got plenty of Oasis and virtual reality or else it would be a completely different movie entirely and no one would like that. So, And it would give the Oasis agency at that point because now it becomes a purposeful thing instead of an escape. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, a revolution rising up to try and take control of the Oasis, I mean, also makes sense narratively from here because now it's been, now it's in Wade's control. But anywho, I trust Ernest Klein at this point after watching this and seeing the screenplay, and I'm interested to see what happens. But I think that's it. We can keep going, but we're not. We're going to go ahead and go to the connecting points. Patrick, this is a little bit different for us. Uh, because we've both chosen the same connecting point. Yes, we have. And it's not natural in that emotional reaction. It's not the same type of emotional reaction that sometimes we get from this. So why don't you do the honors and like kick us off and we'll just start talking about this scene, this moment. Well, let, let me just say that this moment, this scene, after it got finished, I thought to myself, and I think I said out loud, that was awesome. <laughs> One of the things in the book that I enjoyed was the second gate. Okay. And I'm not going to say, I can't say anything about it because I don't want to spoil it for people. But I will say that the second gate or the second challenge was altered completely from the movie. And there was a part of me that was really thinking, I'd love to see the second gate played out from the book. That would be cool going into the movie. When they walk up to the library and they find out that the second gate is within a screening of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, my mm-hmm. jaw dropped. And yeah. I was like, oh my gosh, are we about to go live this this movie with these guys? And sure enough, we see them walk into the theater, which is aptly named after the hotel. <laughs> oh yeah. And they walk, and, and when the doors open, we're at the top of the stairs where Jack goes nuts on his wife. <laughs> and I'm watching this, and I think this goes back to my one word takeaway. Because what Steven Spielberg does is he uses a classic reference, a vintage reference, a reference that people are going to know. People are going to know The Shining. People are going to know Stanley Kubrick. And when we get moments in this sequence of the blood coming out of the elevator, the two girls, um, room 237, and that whole thing, at, at some point, I'm I'm sitting there and I'm going, okay, Aaron watched this and he's thinking, oh, this is going to freak him out because there's like these jump scares and there's all this stuff. Like when uh-huh. the, when the ax came through the door, I jumped and I was like, oh my oh, God, me too. is this turning into a horror movie? What's happening here? <laughs> we zoom out to the maze and yeah. And 
just, I mean, the whole thing is such a fantastic tribute to that movie. And it plays so perfectly into the point of the gate and to get through, get through this movie, because I'm just going to say this as a hint to the gate, the gate in the book has something to do with getting through something similar to this. Um, so I thought the spirit of what this gate was doing and paying tribute to something that a whole lot of people get, not just kids from the eighties was fantastic. It's genius. It's so genius. I, I love the clue. The clue they give is a creator who hates his creation. And I mean, it's, it's awesome because it's well known that Stephen King is not a fan of this movie. And yeah. we talked about that on episode 92. And that's, that was part of the enjoyment for me and part of what really sealed it as the connecting point. You and I here in January before this podcast, if you're listening to this way in the future, so a couple months earlier, um, then we recorded this, we did Kubrick month. And so we got to talk about in episode 92, the shining. And so it was really timely for us to experience this version of the shining. We're not like, removed from it where we saw the shining three or four years ago and remember it vaguely we just dissected it in detail a month and a half ago and for me it was a first time watch so uh-huh. had i not seen this this whole scene would have fallen on well blind eyes at this point and for for me personally i connected so personally with h and being so freaked out i'm thinking you know, I don't like scary movies. I can't deal with this. I mean, that was me. That's me right there. I'm going, I can't believe I have to experience this with him, her. <laughs> and it was just like so personal and perfect for me. Oh, it was amazing. I, I love it. They call it Halliday's 11th favorite horror movie. <laughs> you know, like he didn't use his first, second, third, fourth, top 10. He uses 11th. Um, just outside the top 10. Yeah. it To me, man, I... I can't wait to see this sequence again. I'm I'm going to be as much as I'm enjoying the film as I watch it that second time, I'm going to be looking forward to this in a big big way. I really feel like this is going to end up being one of those iconic all-time Steven Spielberg film sequences like The Death of Jaws and The T-Rex and Jurassic Park. I think we're going to look back and we're oh, even people that don't like this movie go but that haunted house sequence though, like that was amazing and we haven't really talked about the visuals in this film but that's part of the connecting point here is they're stunning they are staggering the cgi in this movie the technicals are off the charts and the way that we transition from cgi to the real world is really well done but specifically in this sequence it is just so amazing well it is because you actually it's not like you're creating like digitized worlds that look like they're fake. I mean, we actually feel like we're in the sequence with these characters. Like I, I feel like H is actually on the set of, of the shining and he's getting, you know, coerced by the woman in, in room two thirty seven, And like, I'm like, how far are they going to take this? What What's going to happen with the act? I was surprised that we didn't see Jack. That's the thing is, but yeah, me too. But, but licensing. Like, well, licensing, and I think the fact is, we what we saw was CG recreations. But I didn't believe that. I didn't think that when I was watching. I thought I didn't know what to think. I was just going, "How is he doing this? How is he pulling these characters from 2018 into a movie that was like 30 years old or 25 years old? How? How? 
that's the magic and the and the vintageness of of Steven Spielberg. He gets us asking, "How is that possible?" And I think that that's where Stephen King's magic lives, and and where his where his big movies like Jurassic Park really get their their love for me personally is it makes me ask the question, "How how does he do that?" Yeah, he's incredible. Um, that's for sure. And this is definitely one of my favorite in Spielberg's library. Um, at this point. And I, yeah. I can only imagine that I'm just going to grow to love it more and more and more over time. Yeah, for sure. Loved it. Well, man, um, this has been great. I, I definitely lived up to my expectations. I was so excited. We both were to have our expectations met, exceeded in so many ways, and then get to have this great conversation about it. I'm really pleased with it. And I hope that listeners, you guys have all enjoyed this. We would love to Hear your feedback on Twitter, on Facebook, in our Feelin' Film Facebook group. You can find a link to that in the show notes or on our website or just by typing Feelin' Film into the Facebook search bar and you can find the group and you can just ask to join and we'll pop you in there with a bunch of other fans. And we'd love to have you come talk about this movie and this episode. We're not going to be forgetting about this one for a while. A lot of times we do an episode on a movie and we talk about it for a week and then we're on to the next one. I mean, we're definitely going to be on to another episode and dropping a few more episodes in a few days for donor pick ones. But this movie, I think Patrick and I both will be happy to discuss for, for weeks on end. I definitely will be seeing it at least once again and I probably multiple more times in the theater. It's one that I want to take in as much as I can before it goes away. Well, um, and, you can, and you can have one more thing before we leave tonight. And that is... Another movie for the trophy room. I'm officially giving it a five. Yeah, baby. All right. That's what I'm talking about. The connecting point. I think the connecting point sealed it for me. I can, I can deal with absorbing the first 15 minutes of the movie in jarred, like vibration visuals and, and, and just ignore that and say, Hey, the connecting point pretty much put it over the top for me. Oh, I love it. I love it. And I can assure you, you're going to like those first 15 minutes when you see it again. (laughs) I liked what I heard. (laughs) It's just not. All right. Well, uh, listeners, if you'd like to connect with me outside of that Feel and Film Facebook group, you can find me pretty much everywhere on the web at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E. Mostly on Twitter. I'm pretty active there. I'm also tweeting out of the Feel and Film Twitter account. want to give you a few announcements as well for those following our Connecting with Classics series. We are getting a jump on, or if you want to get a jump on seeing our April movie, it's going to be Shane. Uh, this month marks that film's 75th anniversary, and so we're excited to take a look at that one. As noted earlier, it's also voting time for the April's Donor Pick episode, so please, again, head over to that Patreon page and consider supporting us for as little as a dollar uh, to get some voting power and join the ranks that have access to those bonus episodes and help us pick those donor picks because uh, those are fun. Those are sometimes the only time, well, I guess it is the only time that Patrick and I are subject to someone else's whims. Every, every other time, we 90% of the time, we talk about movies that we love and that's because we are choosing them. Sometimes in these episode donor episode picks, things turn out differently and we have to review the faculty. So you can be a part of that <laughs> if you wish. <laughs> Patrick, where can people find you? Well, you can catch me on Facebook and Twitter. Those are the primary places of social media that I hang out. Uh, I'm at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. You can just search for me on Twitter at that handle and on Facebook. Uh, you can at me to start conversations about any of the stuff that we've been talking about throughout the life of Feel and Film, this movie or other things that have been on the docket. 
Uh, as you mentioned, Aaron, we have a busy several days coming up. We are catching up with our donor picks with uh, Crazy Stupid Love and Lost in Translation. I'm excited to actually talk about both of those, but I haven't seen Lost in Translation yet. So this will be a first time watch for me. I'm excited about kind of diving into that. And uh, as of today, Major League Baseball in America has officially gotten underway. Today was opening day, which is probably the earliest in uh, baseball history that it started as far as like the time of year. But to celebrate opening day and the baseball season, we will be covering Moneyball next week. So be sure to tune in and come back for that one. I'm very excited. Very excited to talk about that. It's another Aaron Sorkin script, which we absolutely love. And my Mariners are undefeated, baby. So playoffs, finally, <laughs> breaking the streak. <laughs> oh, man. New season, new season, new optimism. I love baseball season. It's way too long, but it's it leaves more optimism than any other sport, I think. In the first, well, as Braves and Mariners fans recently, like we, we get like two weeks of optimism and yeah. then... And then players get hurt, and then we're like, okay, we're just playing with B players now at this point. Yeah, I know, basically. (laughs) Oh, man. But yeah, I'm excited for that one. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. We have thoroughly enjoyed this episode, and we hope that you have too. And until next time, stay positive. And keep feeling film.